Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you all do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is an awesome passage. And this morning we're just going to get through the first six verses. I've entitled this morning's lesson, You Must Be Born Again, Part 1. It's been several weeks since we've been in John, like I said, so let's look back to where we were on the previous lesson, chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. If you remember, we learned there that there's these people that are responding to these signs that Jesus is doing by believing. But there is something categorically wrong with their faith. Um, we, we, we've talked about in the Gospel of John, there's the, this, this theme of true versus false faith throughout the Gospel of John. And here in chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, it's the first instance of faith that's not real faith. And how do we know that? It's because exactly what it says. It says, but Jesus didn't believe them. It says they believed him, but he didn't believe them. He didn't entrust himself to them. He doesn't give himself to them as he does to true believers. There's something wrong with their faith here. And look at the very last word, verse 25. It says, he himself knew what was in man, in anthropos. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, and there was an anthropos. There was a man. To make it a connection. Nicodemus is a case in point example of those that we saw in chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. <clears throat> Just like the people um, there, they respond to Jesus' signs. Look at what Nicodemus says in verse 2. We know you come from God because no one can do these signs. He's responding to these signs. He's just like this crowd. And this chapter is going to expose what exactly is wrong. It's going to go right to the heart of his issue. So this chapter begins by telling us the lost condition of Nicodemus, verses 1 through 2. This is the problem of Nicodemus, this is the problem of the crowd, and it is the root issue of every single person in the world. So let's learn about it. It begins with the lost condition of Nicodemus, verses 1 through 2. In verse 1, John begins by giving us a list of descriptions of this man, Nicodemus. 
Um, John doesn't have to give us these descriptions. He's very intentional. He wants to give us these to help us understand what's going on. First thing we learn is that Nicodemus is a, he's a what? He's a Pharisee. Pharisee. Now who were the Pharisees? Well, we know a little bit about the Pharisees from um, history, reading about them, and also from the rest of, um, rest of the Bible. The Pharisees were a sect within Judaism at this time that emphasized meticulous observance of the law of Moses. And they emphasized observance of the oral tradition of the elders, which sought to apply the law of Moses. They were very serious about God's law. Was a person who had high reverence for God's word, for obeying God's commandments. This is not a person who's loose. This is not a person who's casual with God. He studied the Bible. He was a very religious man. He participated in worship. But this verse, one, is here to tell us that word religion is insufficient. He is religious. He's got a lot. Verse 1 tells us religion is insufficient. More than he's just a Pharisee, one who is very careful with God's word to obey it. Beyond that, he's also a ruler of the Jews. This means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling council over all of Israel. They were the official religious leadership of Israel. And as a member of the council, he was expected to know the law and be able to apply it and, and rule on the basis of it in, in Israel. In verse 10, Jesus calls him a teacher of Israel. So all of this is here to prepare us for what Jesus is about to, to tell him and why it was so shocking, why it was so surprising. This is here to tell us that this is not some unreligious, irreverent fellow. He's not. He would have been viewed by all of Israel as someone with a very close relationship with God. If anyone was in the kingdom, it was him. But in verses 3, 5, and 7, Jesus reveals the true condition of the heart of this religious man. And notice, he has the right God, Yahweh. He has the right scriptures, the Torah. But he has a dead heart. That's what we're going to see. He has religion, but no spiritual life in his heart. The same is true of, of us. Religion will not get you in the kingdom. Faithful Bible reading, church attendance, regular giving, as important as all those things are, will not give you access into the kingdom. There must be spiritual life in the heart, is what Jesus will tell. Apart from the new birth, all of these things, as important as they are, are worthless. But not only is religion insufficient, but also affirmation of the supernatural in Jesus is inadequate. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do the signs you do unless God is with you. This is very significant. Here's a Pharisee, a teacher, a ruler of the Jews, acknowledging that Jesus is a rabbi, 
A rabbi was someone skilled in the Old Testament and who was able and had the credentials to, to teach it. That's significant, Nicodemus would, would call him that. He also recognizes he's not just any teacher. He is one come from God. Now that statement certainly doesn't mean the fullness that John intends, that he is God incarnate, come in flesh. It simply means that he is one commissioned by God. He has come from God, being sent from God. At the end of the verse, we get a, a parallel statement. It says, God is with him. Um, it's a, a phrase that was used of other people, like Moses and, and Jeremiah. God is with him. It means God stands behind his ministry in support of his, his ministry. Well, why would Nicodemus conclude this? Well, it's because of these signs. It says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The expression in, in, in Greek highlights the, the utter sheer impossibility for these signs to be done by anybody. Impossible for these signs to be done. The only exception is if God is behind that person empowering them. That's what Nicodemus says. Jesus is doing these things that nobody can do, so God must be with him. God must be empowering his ministry. So what's wrong with this confession of Nicodemus? Technically, it's all true, right? Is Jesus a rabbi? He absolutely is. Is he commissioned by God? He absolutely is. Is God empowering him? He most certainly is. So what's wrong with this confession? He, Jesus, certainly is all these things. But the problem is that Nicodemus only sees this and he sees no further. He sees the signs. He sees that the signs indicate he must be commissioned by God. But he sees no further. He does not see the glory of Jesus, which the signs point to. And we're going to unfold what that glory is exactly. You see, it doesn't take any spiritual life to be impressed with the supernatural. Lost people, people all over the world, love miraculous signs and wonders. It doesn't take any spiritual life to be impressed with signs and wonders. Dead people like those things, especially if they can benefit by them, right? <clears throat> and that's exactly what the crowd and Nicodemus is impressed with. Nicodemus here is certainly, um, he's probably not even benefiting from these signs, but he's recognizing what he's seeing. He's correct, but he doesn't see any further, and it evidences a deeper heart problem, which is exactly where Jesus, where Jesus goes. But before we get there, Look at this clue we, we, we skipped over at the beginning of verse 2. We get a clue as to what the real condition of his heart is like. Look at verse 2. It says, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, there have been a number of suggestions put forward for why John includes this little detail. He came to him by night. And uh, if you read the commentaries, there's, there, there's a number of reasons people give. Some people say that he feared public opinion, and so he's coming to Jesus by night to avoid the, the crowds and other people um, seeing him. Some people say that he was looking for an uninterrupted conversation with Jesus, and so he comes to him at, at night when, when he, they can't be disturbed. Um, possible. Both may be true, but um, it's inconclusive. Why would John put this here? Well, in the Gospel of John, night and darkness almost always carry a moral, spiritual overtone. 
is symbolic. Certainly he did come to him at night, the historical record, but John puts it here, I think, for symbolic purposes. To speak of the spiritual darkness in which Nicodemus comes to Jesus. This whole section is bracketed by darkness and night. So it begins here, he comes to him at night, and look over at verse 19. This whole section goes from verse 1 to verse 20. Verse 21. And this is the judgment. Light has come to the world, and people loved darkness. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. They are characterized by darkness. This is exactly what Nicodemus' problem problem is. He is darkness. He is characterized by night. In other words, what we're going to see here in chapter 3 is an illustration of what happens when darkness comes in contact with light. Nicodemus, spiritual darkness, comes in contact with Jesus, who is light, and he's going to expose, he's going to shine into his darkness. And what did chapter 1, verse 5 say? It says, light shines in the darkness, and what? The darkness doesn't grasp it, doesn't comprehend it. It's exactly what happens. Jesus speaks light, truth into Nicodemus' life, spiritual realities, and it's, he just misses it altogether. He doesn't get it. He's dead. It means nothing. D.A. Carson said, doubtless Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. So that's the spiritual condition of this very religious ruler. Yes? Why do you suppose he says we? Yes. Uh, you know, we, instead of I, I always kind of thought this was a individual, like he was almost coming privately, but with the yep. word rabbi we know, mm-hmm. it almost seems like he was commissioned by the Sanhedrin to represent them in some way. Is, yep. that, is that too much reading into it's it? It's not. It's that? not. I think that's, that's pretty accurate. I would say that Sanhedrin probably a group of the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I certainly think he's speaking on behalf of a group, whoever they are, that, hey, we've recognized this about you uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is going to speak directly to Nicodemus, but then a few verses later he's going to speak about you all. Again, talking about this this group and all Jews and all people in, in general. So, yeah, very good. Excellent observation. I do not point that out. Um, so this is a spiritual condition of, of Nicodemus here. He makes a pretty good confession about Jesus, but um, Jesus now goes under the surface. He places his finger on the exact spiritual condition of Nicodemus's heart. Which leads us to the next section, verses 3 to 6. New life in Jesus by the Spirit is mankind's greatest need. Nicodemus comes to Jesus saying, we know you're a teacher come from God. And his and he, he's not coming to inform Jesus about anything, right? He's not coming to, to let Jesus know um, what his identity is. He's coming with an implied question, right? He's coming saying, we know you're a teacher come from God. Is that so? Is that correct? Are you more than that? Is probably what he's, he's after. He's coming as a teacher to have a dialogue with another teacher um, to, to gain some more insight. But Jesus responds with more than he was looking for. Jesus responds not simply by declaring his identity more fully, but what must necessarily take place in the heart of every single human being if they are to respond correctly to Jesus. More information is not what Nicodemus needs. More miraculous signs is not what he needs. He needs a radical transformation of his heart. In other words, if what Jesus is about to say does not take place in the heart of Nicodemus or anybody else, not only will they respond wrongly to Jesus, but they will miss the kingdom 
And according to chapter 3, verse 16, they will perish. Nicodemus knew, needs new spiritual life. And that's experienced by the Spirit through faith in Jesus. And we're going to unpack that in its fullness as we go. Let's look at the first thing in verse 3. Jesus declares the impossibility of experiencing the kingdom apart from a new birth. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a play on words going on here. Nicodemus says, No one is able to do these signs apart from God. And Jesus responds by saying, No one is able to enter the kingdom apart from God. Just as impossible as it is for anybody to perform these miraculous signs apart from God's work, Jesus turns it around and says, that's how impossible it is for anybody to enter the kingdom unless God does something equally miraculous in his life. What Nicodemus and all mankind needs is not to affirm the supernatural in Jesus merely. That's important. We have to do that. But it's to experience the supernatural in our lives. In our hearts. Jesus says one cannot see the kingdom of God unless this happens. What's the kingdom of God? It's actually not mentioned very much in the Gospel of John. It's here and then way at the very end of the Gospel of John it's mentioned. But there's another term that John uses that's a, a parallel for this. Do you know what it is? Kingdom of not the kingdom of heaven. That's the, the synoptics use that as well. Eternal life. I think that's John's parallel for the kingdom. Eternal life. And he's going to bring that one up later in this very chapter. The kingdom of God is the saving rule and reign of God through his Messiah. Uh, a time was foreseen by the prophets of Israel um, when ultimately the world and the entire nation of Israel would be under the rule of David. And ultimately under the rule of, of Yahweh. Righteousness alone would, would dwell in the earth. And would include a time of fulfillment of all the promises given to Israel. Climaxing in the kingdom. In the new creation. And in the resurrection of all humanity. This is what Israel was looking forward to. D.A. Carson said... Uh, to see the kingdom of God was to participate in the kingdom at the end of the age to experience eternal resurrection life. Right? This is what the Jews were anticipating, and this is what all of us in here are looking for the final fulfillment of. The kingdom has dawned in Christ, but the resurrection and the new creation is still coming. We're looking forward to this as well. But the Jews supposed that they would automatically be in owing to their biological ties to Abraham. We could go to a few Old Testament passages. We won't for the sake of time. Go to Ezekiel 33-24. Listen to this passage from the Mishnah. It's the, the Jewish oral tradition. Sanhedrin 11-1. This is Jewish theology at that time. All Israel has a share in the world to come. As it reads, Isaiah 9-21, And thy people, they will all be righteous. Forever they shall possess the land, the sprouts, of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may glorify myself. The following have no share in the world to come. He who says there is no illusion in Torah concerning resurrection, and he who says that the Torah was not given by heaven. That's it. You're a Jew. From the Torah, you're, you're in the kingdom. 
And here's Jesus now declaring to a ruler of the Jews, not just any Jew, this is the Jew of Jews, that he will not enter the kingdom unless something happens to him. It's absolutely astonishing that Jesus would say this. So what's this that, that, that must happen? Jesus says, except one should be born anothen, is the Greek. This word can be translated in, in one of two ways, either born again a second time or born from above. The question is, which is it? And the answer is, it's probably both. John loves his double meanings. It at least means born again, because this is what Nicodemus hears, right? Nicodemus says, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? But it probably means a little bit more than that. From above, the same word in the Gospel of John is almost always translated from above. That is from, from God, from God's doing. In other words, one must not only be born a second time, he must receive new life from another realm, from God. Put it another way, unless one experiences eternal life now, spiritually, he will not experience eternal life then. Unless one possess a total transformation of his heart in this life, he will not experience the saving reign of God in the kingdom Unless one experiences regeneration of his person in this life, he will not experience regeneration of the whole creation in the life to come. That's what Jesus is saying. And the question is, why? Why must this happen for a person to enter the kingdom? And I think a clue is given to us in that word see. He cannot see the kingdom. The word simply means he cannot experience the kingdom. But I think in John that this word refers to spiritual sight. He cannot see, he cannot behold the realities of the kingdom. In Christ, the kingdom had dawned. The realities of the kingdom was present with Israel. And they didn't see it. They were blind to it. His glory is God, Messiah, giver of the spirit, and the perfect substitute by man cannot be seen by natural man. The only way to possess life and receive the kingdom is by receiving Jesus as this, but natural man cannot see him. In other words, even if natural man could enter the kingdom, he wouldn't see it. He wouldn't behold it as glorious. He wouldn't love it or the Christ that is at the center of it. That's why it describes that when people don't understand, it's like there's a veil over the eyes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep, Paul talks about that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 2. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what, what John is, is telling us. He cannot see. He's got spiritual sight problem. Unless something happens, he can't see it, and he will not experience the kingdom. So this is still a little bit vague, what Jesus is talking about, that this new life, this total transformation, he's going to clarify in verse 5. So we're going to keep unpacking this a little bit. But before we get there, look at what, how Nicodemus responds in verse 4. He exposes his spiritual blindness by misunderstanding Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see. And Nicodemus' response will reveal just that point. He can't see. He can't see these spiritual realities that Jesus speaks of. And he proves that he needs just what Jesus is talking about. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is totally um, 
oblivious to what Jesus is, is, is talking about. And we know this. We share the gospel with unbelievers. We speak spiritual truths. We unpack the glories of Christ and the depths of the sin of man and his worthiness and the completeness of his atonement. It's just nothing. It just bounces off stone. How's the weather today? That's nice. You see the football game yesterday? No life. Nicodemus only hears born a second time, and he misses the main thrust. He must be born from above, from God's domain. This question here is not a genuine question about how, how might that work. I, 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 help me understand how this new birth thing works. It's a, it's a question that implies a negative answer. He's saying that's impossible. A person cannot just crawl back into their mother's womb and come out again. You can't do it. And he's probably quite offended that Jesus would suggest that he's not going in the kingdom, right? From exactly what we've seen. And so his, his response has some biting sarcasm to it. He's, he's over-literal interpretation to mock Jesus and to totally discredit everything Jesus has just said. The idea is ludicrous. But Jesus' words are from God, and only those born from God can receive them. And that's exactly what he's going to expose in the next Verses. Look at verses 5 through 6 now. Jesus declares the impossibility of entering the kingdom apart from a total spiritual transformation of an individual. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Notice how verse 5 parallels verse 3. Entering the kingdom parallels seeing the kingdom. You see that? Verse 5 and verse 3. And born from water and spirit parallels born from above. So he is explaining. He's unpacking a little bit here in verse, verse 5. Nicodemus has completely missed what Jesus was talking about. And now Jesus clarifies. What do you mean by being born from above? Well, I mean being born from water and spirit. You say, well, Michael, that doesn't help very much. <laughs> that doesn't clarify things. What does that mean? Right? And you're not alone. Um, there are a number of interpretations on what does it mean to be born of water um, out there. Um, but I think it's actually really clear, as we're going we're gonna to see. I won't give you all the options. Here's one of them. Some people say born of water means... Uh, Receiving the physical birth and being born of spirit means a spiritual birth, right? Nicodemus had just talked about the physical birth, and Jesus says, yeah, yeah, you need that, but you also need a spiritual birth. The water uh, represents the, the, the embryonic fluid that breaks when a child is born. The only problem is that this expression, born from water, is nowhere in the ancient world. We know of no sources that refer to that um, as meaning natural birth. And also, this whole expression, not just the born of spirit one, this whole expression, born from water and spirit, is parallel to being born from above. So Jesus is not dicing it up here, physical and spiritual. This whole package is, is parallel to being born from God. So that, that's not a good interpretation. It's a very weak one. Another very common interpretation of this verse is that it refers to Christian baptism. And this is probably the most common uh, interpretation. It is a very unfortunate interpretation. 
This is the universal teaching of Roman Catholicism and a number of other denominations. And they, this is where the doctrine of baptismal regeneration comes from. Infant is baptized and is at that point through the baptism of water that regeneration, new life happens. So why is this not a good translation, a good interpretation? Well, first, if baptism is so important for regeneration and salvation, it is very strange that John never mentions it again. Not only in chapter 3, but for the rest of his gospel. Instead, it is by faith, by faith, by faith, those who believe, who believe, who believe, all the way through John's gospel, never mentions baptism. Second, this doesn't fit with what Jesus is going to declare in verse 8 about the free will of the Spirit blowing wherever he wants, creating new life where he blows. If regeneration is connected with the sprinkling of water on a baby, then verse 8 is meaningless. If you can mechanically create regeneration by sprinkling an infant, verse 8 makes no sense. Number 3, verse 10 Jesus expects Nicodemus to understand what he's talking about because he's a teacher of the Old Testament, right? But if Jesus is referring to Christian baptism, that's going to come much later, then Nicodemus has a legitimate beef with Jesus. Well, of course I don't understand, right? I've never heard of Christian baptism before. So this option must also be rejected. So what then does this mean, being born from water and spirit? First, as we noted above, this entire expression is, is parallel to being born from above. So they must be held together. This is a single birth described in these two ways, born from water and born from spirit. Second, since in verse 10, Jesus expects Nicodemus to know what he's talking about because he's a teacher of the Old Testament, we should look where? To the Old Testament to try to figure out what Jesus is, is talking about. And there's a number of places where water and spirit come together, but there's one that's especially clear. And so I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. We're running out of time, and uh, if we don't finish today, we'll get next week. But look here, Ezekiel 36. This is the promise of the new covenant. This passage promises Israel that following the exile, God would do something to them. Something that every person in the world desperately needs. It's not enough to simply return Israel to the promised land, right? After exile. They need something more deeper, more fundamental to take place in their life. Or else they're just going to go right back into exile, right? They need what this passage promises. So let's read it. Verse, chapter 3, 36, verse 24 to 28. Ezekiel 36. 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. In this passage, God promises Israel two things. 
First, he promises to sprinkle them with clean water. There it is, water, washing. The, the, this water symbolized the, the ritual purification that made people acceptable before God. But this ritual cleansing that Israel did, it could not affect the heart. It was just surface. It was just symbolic. Something deeper had to happen. Well, why? It's because we carry around in us guilt, pollution, uncleanness, unacceptability before God. We need a spiritual washing that makes us clean, forgiven before God. So I think the washing here, the cleansing here, represents a spiritual cleansing, forgiveness that removes guilt. Hold your finger here and look at Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah is a parallel a book to Ezekiel. Jeremiah 33, 8. Listen to this. Jeremiah 33, 8 says, I will cleanse them from all their guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. What does it mean to be born of water? It means to have a spiritual cleansing in which all the guilt of your sin is forgiven. You're washed. You're, what does it mean to be born from above? This is part of it. It's to experience God's total forgiveness and washing of your soul before him. But that's not all. Look at the rest of chapter 36 of Ezekiel. They don't just need forgiveness. They don't just need washing. They need a transformation of their hearts. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll place within you. I'll take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. We don't just need forgiveness. We need a radical transformation of our entire being. It's not enough to have sins forgiven and yet have a heart that hates God, in other words. Everyone is born with this heart of stone. It's a very strange stone. It's a stone that can have all kinds of desires and loves for all kinds of things, but is dead towards God. It can keep God's law externally. It can try to use it like Nicodemus does. And like the Matthew 5 Pharisees do, but internally, it's defiled. It has no ability to obey God, nor a desire to please him at the inward level. Well, how would God do this? How would God transform our hearts to this kind of heart? He would do it through the gift of the Spirit. It says he would cause you to walk in his ways and be careful to obey him. Well, how would he do that? It's not by twisting your arm. It's not by forcing you. It's by recreating your heart by the Holy Spirit that he gives to you. And this is decisive and it's progressive. And all of us experience it. No one in this room is, is perfect. He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about a new power, a new desire in your life that is, that is progressing as we grow that's why the Messiah has come, to create a spiritual recreation. So what does it mean to be born from above? It means to be born of water and spirit. It means to have a totally new life, one that is totally clean and forgiven before God, one that is totally transformed by the indwelling spirit. And Nicodemus had probably not thought of the Old Testament passages in, in this way before. He figured his Jewishness was enough, his law-keeping was enough unconcerned about the guilt of his sin. 
and his deadness towards God. D.A. Carson again said, if, if he was like some other Pharisees, he was too confident of the quality of his own obedience to think that he needed much repentance, let alone have his whole life cleansed and his heart transformed before, before God. So there's much more we could, we could say, but John's, gonna, he's, John's already showed us in his gospel, and he's going to show us again that Jesus came for these two things. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by being a substitution. And he's also come to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has come to provide this eternal life. Life is in his Son. How do you get this eternal life? It's by being connected to Jesus as a vine is connected to a branch. Right? Jesus provides these two things. Well, how does the Spirit do this? We're going to see this more next week. But the Spirit unites us to the life-giving vine of Christ by faith. How do I receive eternal life? What John is talking about, we have to have this if we're going to get in the kingdom. Cleansing and renewal of the heart. It's by faith. And the Spirit produces that in us. So next week, we're going to unpack a little bit more about what was the connection between Jesus and the Spirit and faith and life. Again, and flesh this a little bit out and think about how the Spirit does this. He's like, he's like wind. And what this means. How does this connect? What, what, what's my job in the new birth? How do I respond? Do I do anything? How do I experience it if I'm dead in my sins? And that is what John will, will tell us. We are out of time. Let me read a, a verse in closing and listen to how Paul echoes the same thing. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the cleansing, forgiveness of sins that comes from regeneration, and the renewal, the total transformation that comes through the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be born again. You must have that to enter the kingdom. We praise the Lord. It's ours through faith in Christ. And that is produced in us by the Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for its truth. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus who offers both of these. Thank you for the Spirit who made us alive while we were dead in our sins and gave us faith that we might behold Christ and receive him for this and look to him and receive the total washing. Lord, we are polluted before you. Thank you. Thank you for Christ who cleanses us and doesn't leave us in our sin, but fills us with the Spirit to transform us, give us hearts to love and obey and please God. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. Ask that you would use your word in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.